This is the Accidental Safety Pro live at the 2019 National Safety Congress and Expo in sunny San Diego. Welcome to the show for everybody who's listening. My name is Jill James, Vivid's Chief Safety Officer, and today I'm joined by Lorraine Martin, who is President and CEO of the National Safety Council, new President of the Safety Council. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Jill. Really appreciate you taking time uh, out, of, uh, out of the Congress to do this with us. So I was explaining before we started recording that the podcast is all about people sharing their stories and how safety kind of came into their life, understanding that um, we all kind of came at it accidentally as the pun of the podcast intends. So you have quite an extensive history with um, Lockheed Martin as an engineer, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you were a little girl, did how, yeah, what did you think was going to happen? Or what, when people said, what do you want to be when you grow up? What was your answer when you were little? Yeah, that's a great question. And in some t- sense, I'm an accidental engineer as well. But, okay. Um, I always enjoyed um, science and biology and, and understanding how things ticked. Yeah. Um, and at first, I actually thought I was going to be a marine biologist. Um, but I applied for an Air Force scholarship, and when you do that, they ask you to be in a certain profession, and they, mm-hmm. they gave me a scholarship in math. And oh. uh, so that meant I needed to kind of step back a bit. Yeah. But math and computer science and engineering are still in that world of discovery, of trying to problem solve, of looking at a problem and saying, how do I see myself through this? Mm-hmm. Um, so from, from that math scholarship and entering the U.S. Air Force, I ended up in the computer science field. And it was an incredible opportunity uh, to uh, be a little bit on the forefront at that time of how software was going to mm-hmm. uh, be brought into mm-hmm. the systems that we used around yeah. the world in a very new way. Yeah. And so math and a young woman, that's already unusual for a particular time in history, right? And so was it something that you always loved? I was always good at math. Good at, yeah. Yeah, and... You know, I had parents, uh, thankfully, that said, you can do anything that you want to do. You can go anywhere you want to go. Yeah. Um, And so there were no boundaries on that. Mm -hmm. And when the scholarship came up, it necessarily wasn't something that I said, you know, I'm a math person. Yeah. But I said, I can do this. Right. And this could be really exciting uh, to be able to take uh, that new experience and see where it went. So there weren't very many females, uh, Mm -hmm. to your point, in the Air Force at that time in general in the officer ranks. Right. This would be back in the early 80s. Yeah. Um, And there weren't that many folks in my engineering, mathematics, or computer science courses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, I, you know, showed up, um, brought brought what I was given through my education and through the confidence I was given as a child and um, was able to, to be successful. Yeah. What made you choose the Air Force? How did that part come in? Yeah, um, it was a scholarship, truthfully. I, I went through ROTC, okay. which is a, um, an officer training yeah. course. You don't mm-hmm. go to the academies. You can go to a regular university, mm-hmm. um, and then they pay for your, for your college uh, costs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I was, I, actually, I was always in drum and bugle corps. I don't know mm-hmm. if you're familiar with that, yes. but it's a... I was in uh, marching band. Similar. Okay. Um, outside <laughs> not, of the school system, yes. 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 Uh-huh. So I always enjoyed the teamwork, the collaboration of yeah. different different um, disciplines, in that case, horns and drums and mm-hmm. flags, mm-hmm. coming together to create something bigger than the, bigger than any of the individual activities. Yeah. And 
I enjoyed all of that camaraderie um, and the discipline, as I said. And, and so I had a little bit of a taste of, of some of that world, although the, the services are so much more than that. But as a kid, you know, yeah, you think of you some know. of those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also... I also enjoyed the fact that it was going to be able to be in the science yeah. science career field. So when the scholarship was offered, I said, you know, let's give this a try. Um, so what's your alma mater? I went to DePaul University mm-hmm. with a W at the end. So okay. that's where I did my undergraduate and also mm-hmm. got my Air Force courses. Mm-hmm. And then I did Boston University for my mm-hmm. graduate degree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what was your instrument in the drum I played a mellophone. <laughs> it's that's, a, that's what my son plays. Does he? Right? Yes, it's the a, marching French horn. It's a marching. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You take a French horn and kind of straighten yep. it out a little bit. <laughs> right. Exactly. Oh, it's a beautiful instrument, and you must have really good pitch to be able to play the French horn. I am it. not going to go anywhere near okay. Joseph Street. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So no singing. <laughs> oh, fascinating. So you you finished. So what what happened next? You're working on your degree. You're simultaneously working uh, with the Air Force in the Air Force. How, what happens with your career? Yeah, so I was doing primarily software-related things at the time for the Air Force, which was really great because it was kind of the New. the dawn of understanding how to do software in a rigorous way, how to do it on a a schedule in very complex applications Mm -hmm. and also computer security was just brand new at that time so I got a chance to work with the team Mm -hmm. in the Air Force that was responsible for computer security guidelines how do we even think about separating information at the time so it was really kind of groundbreaking for both software and computer computer security related work and then also a little bit of artificial intelligence or expert systems as we called them then yeah yeah so um how were there points in time where you saw safety weaving in as you're looking back at your yeah. career now? Yeah. So I would say in the Air Force and, and any of our service members, you know that what you're coming to do every day is to protect our nation. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, ensure that the men and women who we ask to do things around the world, either for our country or our allies, can do so safely with the products that we give them mm-hmm. and come home safely to their families. Mm-hmm. So. Any service member, whether it's in the military services or if it's in search and rescue, um, firefighters, police, you know why you're there. And it's protection of some cause, of some some human being, of some asset. Yeah. Um, and so it's ingrained very early on when you're in the military service about the issue of safety and of um, um, human life. Yeah. Um, from there, I went to Lockheed Martin, which I hope we'll talk a little bit about. Yes, of course, please. And I got a chance to then build some of the products that we were going to be providing to the men and women in the services. Mm-hmm. And very clearly, that product has to work every single time so that in this case, um, when I was in the aircraft side of the house, that mm-hmm. that pilot came home safely. They mm-hmm. could do what we were asking them to do mm-hmm. and return to their family at night mm-hmm. in very high-consequence areas. You know, these safety, either in the services or when you're building products to support um, the service members, it's not an, um, a, a question. It's an imperative. Right. It is what you come to work every day is to ensure that you can serve those people and serve them well. Mm-hmm. On top of that, you're building very complex systems. So mm-hmm. all of the issues of construction, manufacturing safety, you know, hazardous safety of materials is all part of than the employees that are building those products. So it's really both sides of that equation, the employees and keeping them safe, Mm -hmm. and then the folks that use your products ensuring that they come home safe from their missions. So it's almost as if safety is the job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely woven tightly, tightly in it. 
So how did your career progress within within Lockheed from what you started with there? Sure. Yeah. So I started in software, so some uh-huh. of the work that I've been doing in the Air Force. Yeah. So command and control systems, systems that say what things need to be where, yeah. people, assets, airplanes, mm-hmm. and some intelligence systems as well that, that were very um, software intensive mm-hmm. but complex. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, I actually got involved in um, pilot training. And pilot training are are high-end simulators with visuals and sound. In some cases, even, you know, they move so they have some kind of motion to put a pilot through a simulated environment so that they can know what an emergency condition would be like, you know, uh, what kind of uh, situation they need to be in if they have enemy fire. So, again, it makes total sense that that would be what you did. Yeah. To move towards it. A lot of software. Uh Had some hardware characteristics to it, too. Um, but it, it brought me to the world of pilots. When mm. I was in the Air Force, I wasn't a pilot. Uh-huh. As I just mentioned, I was in the software field. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the focus and mission of the Air Force is to aim high yeah. and go where we need to go from the air mm-hmm. uh, and space mm-hmm. uh, to be able to do the things that we ask them to do. Hmm. And um, getting closer to pilots in the pilot training business brought me closer to that kind of core of um, the Air Force's mission. Um, and some of the key products that Lockheed Martin built, and that are air, air, aircraft and airplanes. Um, so from the simulator world that I was uh, working in, I then was asked to uh, lead some of our cargo airplane developments and renovations mm-hmm. for the C-5 fleet and C-130. These are large cargo aircraft mm-hmm. that are mm-hmm. used by our services and others. Sure. And then eventually the F-35 program, which is a fighter aircraft, a stealth fighter aircraft. Um, so you... <laughs> Talk about adaptability, right? As this career has has, uh, is that exciting for you? I mean, did you were you always kind of looking around the corner for the next thing, like um, a bit of uh, information, maybe adrenaline junkie, and like I want to know more and what can I do? It's a great question, and I, I often I mentor a lot of folks along that in- incredible career that I had the honor to be part of, and yeah. I will often say that the thing that it really fueled me was to learn more and grow and give more and contribute. Yeah. So if you get motivated by those two aspects of your career, things are going to come your way. Things People are going to ask you to do more if you're always contributing that one day, mm-hmm. that one extra inch in the thing that you're doing mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's so much more power, powerful than being impatient and wanting to know when I'm going to get promoted uh-huh. or wanting to know, you know when I'm going to get the next big job. Yeah. They come so much faster if you're really just focused mm-hmm. on your own growth and contribution right. to the mission at hand. So who mentored you early on in your career, uh, particularly as a as a minority female, I'm guessing, including at Lockheed, probably at that time? Um, who were your mentors? That's a great question. I had someone in the Air Force early on, uh, Captain Joe Itz. <laughs> and he, um, he, he was amazing because he also, like my parents, just said, you can do anything. There were no boundaries. And yeah. that really helped starting in my career mm-hmm. to, to make sure that I had that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, as I came into Lockheed Martin, there were a variety of mentors and coaches all along the way. The corporation, as many big aerospace and large corporate global organizations, are very intentional about providing uh, mentorship, providing support okay. for understanding uh, what next and giving you those skill sets. Hmm, so, so it's okay. baked into the cake, essentially. It is baked into okay. the cake. And those mentors were all kinds of, of folks from all different Dis- uh, diversity mm-hmm. and disciplines as mm-hmm. well, which I think is very powerful. Yes, you don't Agreed. just want to have engineers or software folks yeah. helping you. You know, maybe get a mentor who's the general counsel. They're yeah. going to give you a very different perspective. Yes, 
especially as you grow in your career as a leader, you need to understand all those different facets of the business. That's right. So, That's right. Yeah. That's right. So at what point in your career, this is something that I've been coming to the realization of in the last couple of years, where you become the mentor, <laughs> mm. right? And yeah. Yeah. Um, I think along the way, um, you gather people who see that you might be able to give them something. So they just kind of naturally come to you and yeah. you need to be open and know that that's the engagement that's coming your way. Here, yeah. you're supposed to be giving back. Yeah. Um, but I actually had an event that, that was a little bit um, eye-opening. It was a tipping point for me mm-hmm. in my responsibility to be a mentor. Mm-hmm. And I went to a um, diversity and inclusion event that included uh, white males and, and uh, folks from all different uh, walks of life and females as well. Yeah. And I realized that my journey as a female through the technology field, through my education, wasn't the same as all other females. And mm-hmm. some of them had struggles that for whatever reason, I didn't see or didn't experience. Yeah. And I needed to make sure that I was reaching out and providing more assistance, more mentorship, um, not assuming that everybody necessarily had the, the path that I had had. Yeah. So it was a big wake-up call, and it, it, it was a switch for me immediately that mm-hmm. I needed to, to show up and to add more to show that people like me, people like whoever somebody thinks they are, yeah. can be successful. Yeah. And it- my mentorship... Um, accountability uh, got ratcheted up uh-huh, quite a bit personally uh-huh. because yeah. I felt I needed to, I owed more. Yeah. Is that where the Pegasus uh, Springs Foundation came from? Well, the Pegasus Springs Foundation is primarily founded, thank you for asking about it. Yeah. It is a nonprofit that my husband and I have formed uh, mm-hmm. recently that is focused on educational equity. Okay. And having that conversation here in the U.S. primarily for teachers, for student leaders, mm-hmm. um, about how we make sure our unconscious biases aren't leaking into how we educate, train, and collaborate as as, 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 as educators. Sure. Um, I wasn't an educator, but my husband was, so okay. he comes from that world, and I come from the passion of helping everybody succeed, helping right. everybody live their fullest, yeah. um, and specifically helping uh, young women uh, see that they have no boundaries. Mm-hmm. So how long has the foundation been around? It's been around about a year okay. um, in place, and uh, we've held one a conference already with in partnership with Disney in the summer, and we're going to do another one here in December okay. all around um, equity uh, and leadership for both students and teachers. Hmm, fantastic. Yeah. yeah, so that that bleeds right into talking about STEM. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's this is all tied in with it, right? It is. And um, getting um, equity in STEM and the STEM practices as well, and particularly for women and, and minorities. So what do you think that looks like? In this field, yeah. I mean, I know what it looks like for. I've been in safety 25 years, and I know that I'm still a minority. I know mm-hmm. there's more of us coming, um, but how do you think that we, as female leaders, um, can be laying our hands on that encouragement and change uh, for people? So we touched on one before, and it is the mentorship. It is the yeah. sponsorship, and I use that word actually more intentionally than mentorship, but to really sponsor others in mm-hmm. your organization, perhaps cross organizations, to ensure that people, if they have looked them over in some way or had a bias they didn't even know they had, to yeah. make sure you pull those people up. Yeah. In any organization that you're in, you can be very intentional about ensuring that your slates for who you're looking at for promotion or hiring have diverse candidates on them, women and others. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And some of those things you just have to be very, very intentional about. And again, to use your term, to bake it in to how you do business. 
At the same time, the, that, that coaching and mentorship is so important. Um, there's been studies done by a variety of philanthropies that look at why aren't young girls yeah. as early as middle school getting into, even today, some of the science and technology right. fields. Yeah. It's actually going the wrong direction. It is. Mm -hmm. Which is alarming. Mm -hmm. um, it is. And the studies all show that for young girls, they look at things that they want to do in their life or as they start to get excited about things and they look at the people around them. Yes. So that's the first one. Yes. I'll come back to that. Okay, please. The second is that they are looking for something that can be creative and have impact in the world. Yeah. And we hear that a lot from the, the generation of, of young adults that are coming up. Those mm -hmm. are things that really fuel mm -hmm. our population right now. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, they look at science and technology and say, oh, that, those two aren't those two things. Yeah. That blows me away. Yeah, right? Um, you know, there's a, a TED Talk that's called Badass Scientists, uh -huh. and they're all females. And uh -huh. what they're doing is absolutely uh -huh. creative and mm -hmm. changing the world. Mm -hmm. But we haven't made that connection for young girls. Yeah. And the studies show that if you don't catch young girls literally between, like, the ages of 6 and 12, very early, yeah. and have them see others, see other women, examples that are doing things in science and technology that are deemed to be creative mm -hmm. and, and changing the world, mm -hmm. that they miss mm -hmm. that connection. Yeah, the optics are so important that we can see our skin suit in whoever someone you think you are. Whoever you think you are, that's right. Doing, yeah, yeah. yeah that anything. people like me yeah. can do that and be successful. Yeah and be rewarded and have yeah. you know have joy from doing it. Yeah. So you have to bring examples to those to those young girls. Right. So going to the schools, bringing scientists in there mm -hmm. and that study also said that a lot of times it doesn't have to be in the school. It could be the soccer teacher who is female mm -hmm. um, on the Saturday soccer field who also happens to be a biology research person and brings that story to the soccer team about who they are, that they can be this and you can be this, mm -hmm. and this is really fun mm -hmm. and cool. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So outside the schools are really important. So when I speak to college campuses or even workplaces about this issue of diversity and inclusion, I'll mm -hmm. end by saying, Every single person in this room needs to find three girls in the next three months because you're gonna you do interact with that many young girls. Yeah, and go bring them your story. Yeah. Go bring this to life for them, yeah. so that they know that at least they met one person. Yep. If they have an inclination of math yeah. and science and 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 tinkering and yeah. understanding things, that they can see that personification mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. what it could be. Mm -hmm. And it. This research says that can change everything. Mm -hmm. So we have a job to do. We have a really big job to do. I've, uh, I w many years ago, was invited to uh, a, camp a college campus as a panel of women in uh, STEM to talk about our jobs and what mm -hmm. we did. And so those things have been happening, but I don't think they happen with as much purpose as they need to. And so maybe one of the things that we need to be doing is saying, hey, I'll volunteer for that. Could you put something together and then just to ask the questions mm -hmm. ask the questions my my son's been part of a robotics team for the last couple of years and uh, you know it's organized by this world organization mm -hmm. that pulls it together and I pay attention to the girls that are on these teams first there aren't many and then I started adding up how many of the girls are driving the robot not many. Mm -hmm. I started like my, my the optics of what I'm. So then I started asking questions of the organization, like why aren't there, why aren't the girls driving? And I got answers like, well, they really like to do support. And I went, mm -hmm. and then someone caught their words and said, 
Yeah, so we need to be challenging and asking those questions, right? So you've just sparked something for me because I think this is just as pertinent in the workplace. Yes. And making sure that we all bring our voice to the table because there are times, in your like in your robotics example, that yeah. I think some women um, don't don't come to the table or they don't bring their voice to the table. And that's part of the coaching I've been doing is know your stuff, know your craft, yeah. whether it's safety or whatever right. it is. Yes. Know your craft and then bring it. Yeah. Because if you're not, you're the only one who can choose not to bring your voice. Mm-hmm. Somebody else can choose to try to mm-hmm. shut you down, mm-hmm. but you're the one choosing not to come to the table. Yeah, so and to ask get those to the questions. Table. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So you you made a decision to do a career shift after 30 years with Lockheed and said yes to the, to the safety council. What made you say yes? So after 35 years in the aerospace 30, and industry, so wow. with the Air Force, mm-hmm. Um, I was at a point, especially with looking at the nonprofit foundation we set up, of yeah. saying, how can I give back? Yeah. And I looked at a, a variety of nonprofit activities in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, this one really rang a bell because not only do I get to bring some of my experience of being in the workplace and seeing safety as an incredibly important piece of how you get your work done. Yes. Um, I also um, can bring the business side of, of what I have. Mm-hmm. And the National Safety Council, Council as you can see, does big things. Yes, <laughs> We're right. sitting here on the, the expo floor yes. pulling this off. It takes a team that really does. does know a lot about management and schedules and, and planning. Yeah. Um, so 35 years of doing very complex uh, business and product development, mm-hmm. I, I can bring some of that to the council. And not all foundations and not all nonprofit organizations mm-hmm. have this kind of complexity. We also build products at the council. Yeah. Uh, so we have training products and uh, materials that have to be high quality and produced efficiently and, and distributed to the folks that need to get them. And some of the experience I've had in business mm-hmm. can be brought to bear there. So incredible mission, yeah. the nonprofit uh, focus I was looking for, and a business side of it mm-hmm. that I can bring some of that experience that will be rewarding for me to contribute but also help the organization grow, I hope. Right, right. And so you've been at the job for... How- 97 days. <laughs> and you're pulling off the... It, I mean, isn't this touted as the world's largest? It is the world's <laughs> largest. Yeah, we have over a 1,000 exhibitors on this floor here, uh, 14,000 attendees. Wow. Uh, we had the opening cer- ceremony yesterday, which I was honored to address, and I think there were some... I don't know, 9,000 between the main floor and the Mm -hmm. overflow rooms that Mm -hmm. uh, we're hearing our keynote Mm -hmm. speaker, who was amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, it's big. (laughs) Yeah, and 97 days into the job. Congratulations. Well, I have an incredible team, so (laughs) I can't take any credit, really, for that. They... They're an amazing, passionate team that comes to work every day, literally to save lives. Yes, absolutely. And if you're looking for a next journey, um, you know, what is better than that? To wake up every day and say, how can we address workplace fatalities and injuries? How can we address the opioid crisis around mm-hmm. our country? Mm-hmm. We're starting to look at issues having to do with fatigue in the workplace, looking at uh, cannabis and the complexity of that as, as companies try to navigate it, um, you know. Yeah. So are those some of the things that you kind of have in your mind right now as the focus for your tenure? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we follow the data. So Mm -hmm. we first need to look at what is causing injuries and fatalities in the workplace Mm -hmm. um, and in our community. We are looking at the challenge from the workplace to any place, which is what our heritage has been. Um, And the the issues in the workplace are the same issues that are in our communities. Mm -hmm. Number one um, fatality in workplace is still driving. 
Uh, we ask a lot of employees to get in vehicles or to be around vehicles, and unfortunately, many of them, you know, have incidents associated mm -hmm. with that. So we've got to double down on um, defensive driving techniques, and we have some toolkits for um, uh, workplace on the issue of mm -hmm. uh, driving. Mm -hmm. uh, next in line, though, is impairment, and it comes in all kinds of forms. Human beings come to yeah, work. Yeah, talk more about what that is. Yeah, human yeah. beings come to work to do very tough things. We yeah. ask them to put new processes in place, be more efficient, you know, look mm -hmm. out for the next hazards. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes they come to work tired, yeah. perhaps, you know, they had issues at home, mm -hmm. perhaps they've been prescribed uh, medicines that cause them not to be as alert as they should. They all mm -hmm. say, you know, don't operate heavy yeah. equipment. They could be struggling with a substance misuse issue. Yeah. Um, and we need to know how to under to keep them safe as they come into the workplace mm -hmm. and those around them. So. Mm -hmm. We are actually unveiling, and I announced it yesterday, two new toolkits okay. for workplace, one on opioids and one on fatigue. Hmm. Uh, and you mm -hmm. can go by our booth, I think it's around the corner yeah. there, uh -huh. um, to get some assistance in your workplace on these very critical issues of how to see it, how to do something about it, how to have dignity for employees that are struggling with things, right. and how to help them return to the workplace. Because all the data says if an employer steps in to help somebody who's struggling, they are higher performing employee on mm -hmm. the other end of that mm -hmm. than your average employee. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's step up. Yeah, yeah. I've recently been um, talking with and had a guest on the podcast who has actually two guests talking about mindfulness and safety and mm -hmm. its connection. And we, you know, we, we use terms like um, pay attention, be present, um, you know, pay attention to your job, be here, but that's a really hard piece for people to be yeah. present. And so how do we teach that? And so um, two individuals have done research and um, they've done some research and studying on mindfulness and then there's a practitioner and they've been marrying these things together Very successfully cool. in, in teaching people like really how to get present when they get to the, when they get to work so they can shed some of those things possibly from home that might be a distraction or from work and the pace of work so that the task at hand can be focused on it's really powerful right yeah i think it's just really interesting um research that's just starting right there's now. a lot of um cognition and i'll just use that generally to yeah. say how a human being is able to be either present like you said mm -hmm. for the for the task at hand or whether or not they're being uh, impaired in their ability to yeah. be present and how yeah. do we how do we not only get them to the right state, mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe through mindfulness, mindfulness te techniques, yeah. um, or know that they're not, and make sure that we're taking the right actions. Mm -hmm. I think this issue of cognition and the human being in a workplace is going to continue to be something we focus on, especially Absolutely. as we bring technology into the workplace. Mm -hmm. And we start to have automation and other things that are doing some of the more more manual activities. Mm -hmm. That human being and their mind and how they're interacting in that environment with a lot of technology is going to be so critical for us to navigate and navigate well. And the things that we used to call a soft skill is really a hard skill. Exactly. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, um, you know, one of the things that you said yesterday when I was listening to you on stage, I believe you were repeating, leave no one behind. 
Yes. Right. And so that's kind of where we're that's where we're at right now. What does that look like um, for you? Maybe for the next Congress, 2020, when you have more time to be thinking about. <laughs> Thank you. Um, right. Educational equity and collaboration and not leaving people behind um, as you continue to. Plan. You know, it, it's going to take all of us, yeah. uh, the accidental safety professionals. Yeah. What the... can we do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you've got an audience of safety <laughs> yeah. professionals. What would you what would you what would well, be your ask I, of us? I gave a little bit of that call yesterday and I think it is to show up where the work is done and go to where we're asking employees to do things whether it's construction sites or whether it's their office work environment or in my case getting inside the wings of a c5 to try to address the fasteners in Mm -hmm. there go as a safety professional ensure that you're in the workplace and seeing what human beings are struggling with or what they're putting themselves into potential hazardous situations and ask yourself, how can I change this situation and what can I do to partner with them to mm-hmm. resolve it? Mm-hmm. I say that not only to our safety professionals, but I say it to all leaders yes. in all organizations. Yes. This is your job and this is how, you asked me at the outset, You know, I became an accidental safety professional. Yes. And it is because when I was a leader in a big organization, helping organizations build complex systems, I made it my job to show up to the workplace and see what people were struggling with. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's struggling to get the job done on time mm-hmm. and on schedule, and sometimes mm-hmm. they're struggling because there's hazards in their way. Yeah. And if you don't go and ask the question to the people doing the work, what's mm-hmm. in your way? Mm-hmm. What's hard right now? Mm-hmm. You can mm-hmm. come up with very simple questions That's that right. are open-ended, yes. and you're going to get a flood of information. Exactly. Show me how you do your work. And I then do, do something yeah. about it. Right. Right. Yes. <laughs> Which is... You know, sometimes we ask and then don't follow through, and then you know nobody's going to tell you anymore. Right, all credibility and is lost. You yeah. got to have you yeah. got to have your ears open, and then you have to take action. Yeah. So, we need to go, and we need to be a call to arms to show up, be a leader, um, ask the employees what's what mm-hmm. they most need, mm-hmm. and make sure we're providing mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Lorraine, thank you. Thank That's you. That's wonderful. Appreciate it. Appreciate your time. Good luck with your position. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think this is this is a great Congress. You're getting a, you're getting a great start. Thank you, thank so, you much. so much. Appreciate it, Jim. Yeah, you're welcome. And thank you all for spending your time listening to get today. And more importantly, thank you for your contribution, making sure your workers, including your temporary workers, make it home safe every day. If you'd like to join the conversation about this episode or any of our episodes, follow our page and join the Accidental Safety Pro Community Group on Facebook. If you aren't subscribed and want to hear past or future episodes, subscribe in iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, or any podcast player that you'd like. You can also find all the episodes at vividlearningsystems.com slash podcast. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating and review us on iTunes. If you have a suggestion for a guest, including if it's yourself, please contact me at social at vividlearningsystems.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.